and welcome to SRUC's Rural Policy Podcast. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the policy landscape post-Brexit and after the results of the recent Scottish election. Um, I'll be speaking to a range of policy experts we have at SRUC covering um, a range of different issues. Uh, my name is Jane Atterton um, and I work in SRUC's Rural Policy Centre. So we know in the election that the SNP won a fourth consecutive term, uh, winning 64 seats, uh, just one short of an overall majority. And obviously, recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic is going to be the main focus for session six of the Scottish Parliament. But there's lots of other critical issues, too, um, not least shaping uh, the future system of agriculture and rural development support in Scotland now that we are out of the EU and tackling the big issues like climate change and biodiversity. So I'm going to go to Professor Davy McCracken first. So Davy is Head of Department of Integrated Land Management at SRUC and Head of the organization's Hill and Mountain Research Centre. Davy, what sort of things need to happen if we're going to achieve green economic recovery? Thanks, Jane. So as you said in your introduction there, uh, clearly most people know that we're in a climate emergency, but actually much many fewer people actually realise we're also in a biodiversity crisis. Um, and by that, um, I mean especially um, those habitats, those species that are associated with open land across Scotland, whether it's birds, butterflies and moths, or even the wildflowers themselves that are declining. Um, and that's a major issue for us. Uh, and addressing um, those declines do actually mean different things for different farming systems. So down in our lowlands um, and in what we call our in-by fields uh, in, in our upland farms, um, addressing biodiversity uh, Biodiversity concerns is more about managing uh, and protecting those remnants that still exist um, in, in, in the farms or in the landscape, but also taking action to reinstate uh, many of those habitats that we've lost over the last 30 or 40 years. Whereas um, up in our mountains and moorlands, um, it's actually much more about ensuring that the um, agricultural practices and agricultural management is appropriate, particularly with regard to ensuring the right grazing regimes are in place um, in order to actually benefit that wide range of biodiversity that we put a big nature conservation value on um, in Scotland. All that means that future policy needs to be flexible enough um, to recognise um, and adapt to those differences. Um, but also, quite frankly, uh, it also means that we really could do with something, some hard targets for addressing the biodiversity loss um, and targets set for 2030, because otherwise we will just get into a situation of shifting the goalposts. So we had targets for 2010 and we didn't make them, so we moved the target forward to 2020. And we didn't make that and we now moved the target forward to 2030. Having a, a legislative framework that says something does need to happen, as is currently with climate change, would actually help focus people's attention on what we could do um, more for biodiversity here in Scotland. And if we're serious about achieving a green economic recovery, then we need to ensure not only that what we call natural capital, you know, all the, um, um, the habitats and, and the biodiversity that we have in Scotland is actually in good condition, but we also need to ensure that there are businesses out there that want to operate in what's called the natural economy as a focus for their income generation. And that means we also need to have people with skill sets that are um, relevant to actually work in those new businesses, some of which will be businesses that expand. Some of, those, some of those will be new businesses operating in that different um, economy going forward. Um, and historically, we've had much more of a focus on um, extracting um, from the natural economy. So things like agriculture, fisheries and forestry. 
Um, but going forward, we also need to actually have much more of a focus or an additional focus. We're not going to get rid of farming, fishing and forestry, but we need to have much more of a focus on managing our landscapes for storing um, things like water and carbon um, or actually using the existing health um, of our landscapes and um, the fact that they're in good condition to increase the range of um, tourism and recreation opportunities that we actually have. Thanks, Davy. So you mentioned there the differences in the farming systems across Scotland and the need for policy to reflect and facilitate that. Um, turning to Stephen Thompson, who's a senior agricultural economist and policy advisor at SRUC. Stephen, of, of course, all the major parties mentioned the need to design a new support system for Scottish agriculture now that the UK has left the EU. There was lots of work going on around this by the previous SNP government through the farmer-led groups, for example. In your view, how do we achieve a just transition for Scottish agriculture through our policy framework, which will deliver on food, on climate, on biodiversity and on rural economy objectives? Um, That's a very good question, Jane, and a a complex answer, perhaps, uh, just because of the nature of agricultural policy. Um, and where we've where we've come to through the common agricultural policy mechanisms, so the, there's an absolute need for us to uh, to refocus what we're doing in agriculture and agricultural policy mechanisms, the delivery mechanisms, and uh, the the post Brexit period has allowed uh, the UK government and the devolved administrations uh, that opportunity to break the the, the mould where we've cut where we've come from. The, the real challenge going forward is embedding new principles around climate and biodiversity that Davy mentioned um, earlier. And part of the work that we've been doing um, for the farmer-led groups and for the Scottish Government is, is trying to conceptualise how this could work uh, as we move forward. The key principle is the just transition. And as Davy mentioned, targets, if we have targets for biodiversity for 2030, we've got targets for climate change for 2032 and annual targets. Uh, that means that it's imperative that we kickstart this process, uh, this process of policy reform uh, relatively quickly. And that's where the concept of, uh, of conditionality in the, in the this payment mechanisms uh, becomes vitally important. So if we um, keep a structure that's similar that everybody's familiar with uh, that that is a basis of continuity for business decision making but what the government can do is embed more and more conditions with regards to biodiversity provisioning and climate change mitigation as we move forward there's currently a sunset clause in the in the agriculture bill in Scotland, uh, meaning that primary legislation will have to be placed before Parliament uh, by 2025, and that is the opportunity where we really embed uh, the principles of uh, of paying farmers to deliver uh, and. If you're delivering more on biodiversity and climate change, then you would get higher tier payments. And if we can set the signals to farmers that if they achieve on those two mechanisms and continue to produce food, this is a vital component of it, food production and activity, then they would they would get enhanced payments over those that are not delivering. And then you are paying by outcomes. You're, you're using the existing model which is accepted by the WTO, is accepted by the European Union to deliver on environment and biodiversity. 
Fabulous, Stephen. Thanks very much. And, and staying with the, the theme of, of food and the food system, um, Professor Mads Fisher-Muller joined uh, SRUC in, in autumn last year as Professor of Food Policy, um, having previously worked at the Nordic Council of Ministers. Um, Mads, obviously, um, the major parties, again, in their manifestos mentioned the need for new legislation on food, including in the form of a Good Food Nation bill. Um, so the need for change across the food system is clearly an issue that has cross-party support. Um, what, in, in your view, are the changes that need to be prioritised and how can we ensure that they happen? Yeah, first of all, it's it's very positive to see that almost all uh, the major parties are embracing a narrative around food that, that, sickness, that tells us that food is important and that food system change is important. And we know that we're facing some huge challenges. Not only does Scotland have the most unhealthy diets in Europe, we also have huge inequality in food where I, living here in privileged Stockbridge in uh, northern parts of Edinburgh, has a very different food environment to, say, someone living in the, on the Western Isles or in Western Glasgow. Uh, but we also, on top of that, have new, all the time learning new, uh, new things about how food impacts our greenhouse gas emissions and our biodiversity. We can see that the pressure on our planet from our food consumption is huge. And that's not an exception for Scotland. So there's a recognition that business as usual is not an option. Change is needed. But also, we know change is hard. We know where we need to go, improved efficiency, reduced waste. And crucially, we need to change our diets towards more plant-based diets. And we need to align our food production more towards the changed diets. We are currently spending only about 4% of our arable lands to what would be what should be around 85% of what we put on our plates, the green stuff and the starchy stuff. Uh, and we can also see in the future that we have shocks coming, coming towards us. We have climate change. We have dietary change. Many more people want to change their diets. And are we ready to produce that? And we have the UK leaving the European Union. So we need to prepare the Scottish food system for this major systemic changes. Uh, and we need so I would my best advice would be that the policymakers need to recognize and embrace that and that need for change and take some of the hard discussions about the change that is needed in food. We need to pave way for the next food businesses in Scotland that we can thrive from. We have been excellent in producing dairy, beef, salmon, whiskey. Scotland is so great at producing food and drinks. How can we make sure that we are ready to produce what the market demands in 10, 15 or 20 years? Uh, so we need to be have honest conversations about that. What I'd say is that we can learn quite a lot from looking abroad. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. I came to Scotland from the Nordic Council of Ministers, uh, and I've seen in the Nordic countries that change is possible. Sometimes it can be super hard to envision, can we produce something else? Can the food system produce anything but the status quo? But what we've seen is over the past 10, 15 years, the, the Danish food industry have embraced, for instance, plant-based protein. So now the biggest dairy in Denmark are producing pea milk, oat milk. The biggest slaughterhouse is producing green sausages. So that's just one example of the big businesses embracing change. And we need to figure out what kind of policies can underline that change towards more healthy and sustainable food production and food consumption. 
And there are a lot of market-based solutions. We've been talking now uh, earlier in this podcast about uh, uh, subsidies, schemes for support, etc., which is, of course, crucial. But we can also, in Scotland, learn more from, for instance, our Nordic neighbors in terms of how can we pave way to the market for the niche phenomena that we would like to see thrive, but are currently in the niche for consumers in Stockbridge like myself. How can we make sure that organics or plant-based is, is more of a stable thing for everyone to access and not just for the privileged ones? And you can work with the big supermarkets. You can work with the businesses through public-private partnerships. So we need to embrace that narrative change and we need to figure ways to bring make the, the health and sustainable diet more accessible to more people through public-private partnerships. That's fascinating, Mads. Thank you. Lots lots that we can learn from our Nordic neighbours. Um, turning to Dr. Jane Glass, who's a researcher in SRUC's Rural Policy Centre, uh, we've seen that issues around food supply, access to food has been have been key during the pandemic over the last year or so. Lots of growing pressure on food banks, growth of community larders, for example. But what kinds of other support are needed in rural areas as people and businesses recover from the various impacts of the lockdowns that we've seen over the last year or so? Thanks, Jane. Um, We've done quite a bit of work recently looking at the impacts of the COVID lockdowns on the rural economy and on rural communities. And one particular thing that we've looked at during the Rural Lives Project um, was how the lockdowns have affected people in rural areas who are already experiencing financial hardship. And I think it's worth sort of thinking about the fact that in 2018, so before COVID, if we can cast our minds back that far, the Financial Conduct Authority found that more than half of Britain's rural residents are financially vulnerable. And we also know that half of all rural residents fell into poverty at some time between 91 and 2008. So the differences between rural and urban poverty rates, while they're not that great, we tend to think about poverty still as an urban issue rather than a rural one. But we've got poverty in both urban and rural areas. So both before and during the pandemic, we spoke to a lot of people in three different case studies, two in Scotland, one in England. And um, while we had many stories of rural resilience, people being really kind, you know, local initiatives to support people experiencing financial hardships, the lockdowns have really delivered quite huge shocks to rural economies and communities. And most obviously, this is through the temporary or permanent closure of many businesses, as well as the loss of earnings to employees, to self-employed and freelance workers. And in the study areas, and as will be the same across a lot of rural Scotland, the large tourism and hospitality sectors have been and continue to be particularly hard hit. The more so since many staff had insecure, casual or seasonal work with zero hours contracts common in tourism, hospitality or retail. Um, And some workers, including those from the EU, have also lost the homes which went with um, some of these more insecure jobs. So a lot of people have had access to state support through furlough, through self-employment income support, uplift to universal credit. Um, But a lot of people in rural areas haven't actually benefited from those for one reason or another, or they didn't qualify. And this issue was particularly linked to the nature of rural employment. A lot of people have to have several jobs. And before lockdown as well, the geographical spread of Uh, benefits claimants was quite even between urban and rural areas. Um, This, for example, in Perthshire. But again, last summer, that shift was seeing an increase in the claimant rate in rural as compared to urban. 
So what was really striking, I think, in our research was how the voluntary and the community sector responded. And they were often the first port of call, um, offering kind of kind, compassionate and empathetic support to people in need in rural areas. We've heard countless stories of emergency supplies of food um, being uh, delivered to people during lockdown. We've seen a lot of really quick responses, effective responses from these voluntary and community groups, helping people to access welfare benefits at the outset and continuing to help those people who kind of fell through the, the cracks in state support. And one of the things that really came out of this research and we need to think about going forwards is that we need to learn how to combine these kind of more person-based measures with place-based measures. So by person-based, I mean things like the universal credit, tax credits, pension credit and so on. And they're very much targeted at individuals wherever they are. But place-based measures are things like the projects, the joint working, the local initiatives, the support from the voluntary and community sector, and the different ways of reaching people in rural contexts. And those two things have to work well together, because often it's those place-based approaches which are signposting people and helping them find the national support that is available to them. Thanks, Jane. Again, lots of lots of issues that you touched on there. I'm going to move over to the issue of, of land reform and come to Dr. Rob McMorrin, who's a researcher in the Rural Policy Centre. Rob, can you tell us a little bit about the current direction of travel in terms of land reform policy? What's changed? What are the key themes um, looking back over recent years? But perhaps more importantly, looking forward, um, what are the key questions? What are the key policy issues that need to be addressed? Hi, Jane. Yeah, thanks. Um, so land reform uh, in, in terms is a very important agenda, I think, currently. Um, and you've seen that, I think, in both the SNP and the Green Manifestos, uh, land reform is in there um, and, and quite clearly important going forward. And it's also a bit of a cross-cutting theme in terms of kind of the new themes that have come forward or the new policy areas. A few important things to mention would be that we now have two land reform acts. And as part of that, we have the Scottish Land Commission, which has done quite a lot of work in this area over the last few years. And we've contributed to that through a number of um, areas of, of research, including work on uh, mechanisms or, or pathways to community ownership and looking at uh, different pathways like the community right to buy, for example, and the successes of the community right to buy, but also areas for potential improvement. And so that's an area of focus, I think, um, for, the, for the Scottish government going forward in terms of improving some of those pathways, in terms of enhancing some of those pathways and also increasing the support available to communities um, under the Scottish Land uh, Fund, um, for example. Um, there's, a, there's a number of other interesting aspects of land reform as well, one of which relates to governance and community governance um, and how communities are governed in Scotland. And in particular, in relation to, for example, the Scandinavian model and sort of the applications of increasing the level of empowerment for, for communities through community councils, these sorts of angles. Um, another interesting area, I suppose, that has emerged in particular over the last few years is what you might call urban land reform and an emphasis on community buyouts or, or, or community acquisitions of assets through the community asset transfer, empowering communities in an urban dimension. And I think land reform often has been seen as, as, as a sort of a rural uh, or, or niche area of policy that applies more to rural areas. And I think what we've seen is an increasing emphasis on land reform in an urban context and an idea, I guess, around sort of, um, to a certain extent, mainstreaming the land reform agenda or, or, or making it more applicable or relevant to um, the wider sort of Scottish public um, in general. Um, and, and, and one other area that we've worked on recently in relation to that is, is public attitudes uh, to land reform. We just recently did some work um, on public attitudes uh, to land reform for the Scottish government with Ipsos Mori. And one of the things that came out of that is that people don't always fully understand what land reform is. 
it's you know, sort of a complicated theme. Um, but when, when you actually explain to people some of the outcomes or some of the areas of activity within land reform, like community um, ownership or, or, or empowerment, they, they, they begin to engage very quickly with those sorts of things, like whether that's allotments or, or, or getting a hold of a village hall or something like that, and people see the benefits very quickly. And um, so there's a bit of a disjuncture there sometimes between the outcomes and the activity on the ground and the sort of the, the, what's seen as maybe the more academic or, or policy dimension of, of land reform from a public perspective. So there's increasing interest there in terms of trying to dig into um, where people, uh, where people's attitudes to land reform come from and, and what are behind those in terms of the drivers and pe- of people's thinking. Thanks, Rob. I'm, I'm going to go back to, to Stephen Thompson with a, with a final question, and it's returning to this idea of the, the natural economy. How can focusing on the natural economy and natural capital provide a, a firm foundation for ensuring a just, inclusive and sustainable future for Scotland? I think there's real potential for Scotland's rural communities and businesses to be at the forefront here. But in your view, what actions need to be taken to make sure this happens? Thanks, Jane. Um, well, the, the natural economy, um, you've seen uh, through the discussion here lots of parts of a jigsaw um, with regards to the rural sphere, whether it's communities or the economy uh, or, or nature itself. And, and I think the, the vital component, if we're ever to deliver uh, effectively on natural economy and rural communities, is to join the jigsaw pieces together and join the dots up and understand that when you do one thing, it has consequences elsewhere. And understanding those 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 relationships is a vital component in this. If we look at the natural economy, uh, we're talking about what some people will talk about as the blue-green economy. So the green being the natural environment in rural Scotland, the blue bit being the, the, the marine environment. And how can we actually uh, stimulate economic activity in there? Jane talked about uh, the impact of COVID. Uh, COVID has has had a massive impact on some sectors within the the rural sphere, um, as as has Brexit, and the the consequences of Brexit um, are, are being felt in some sectors of the food economy uh, more than more than others. And we also have to look forward to um, to future free trade agreements that could impact even further on the wider food economy. So actually start thinking much more holistically in the, uh, about the, the rural economy and the consequences of lots of different policy strands on them. And if you start thinking uh, about the opportunities that Scotland has in the rural economy, whether that's uh, with regards to agriculture, with regards to uh, fisheries and and aquaculture, where timber production, uh, tourism, food and drink sector, you know, these are big sectors in the Scottish economy uh, alone. They're massive sectors for the rural economy when they're combined. Uh, And if we have some strategic thinking as to how do we help innovation? How do we help re-kickstart some of the businesses that have had to close for up to a year uh, as a result of COVID uh, and and bounce back better uh, in the sort of the the, the new terminology? Um, Those are are vital and that will take investment. It will take investment in people, uh, as Davey mentioned, in terms of training. It will take investment in terms of innovation uh, into research and development of new ideas. We don't have to be stuck in boxes, as Mads was saying. Uh, we don't have to think traditionally about our food production as being stuck in the normal boxes. There are other opportunities there uh, to to, um, uh, to to benefit from evolving consumer 
preferences and new market opportunities uh, that, that these trade agreements might actually offer as well. Scotland, remember, has a an international reputation with regards to uh, whisky production and 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 also salmon and other aspects in terms of tourism. So we we need to use those uh, that reputation and the 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 people that um, that 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 have have a connection with Scotland to market what we do better, explain what we do better, uh, and actually make make the most of what we've got in rural Scotland. Which is which is a, a huge asset that we've got that is probably currently underutilized and un, under under uh, perhaps under under understood. If you know what I mean, it's not fully understood as to what the potential is, uh, particularly around uh, things like peatland and and woodland creation uh, and the opportunity uh, that natural defences can give. On climate, on biodiversity, on water, uh, that that actually affect all of our lives um, as we move forward. Uh, but as I say, that doesn't happen as it, on its own. It re- it will require investment and and some real strategic thinking about how to join it all up. That's great, Stephen. Thank you. Lots lots of challenges, but but even more opportunities potentially. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. Thank, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to know about more about some of the work that we do, please visit our website, www.sruc.ac.uk forward slash Rural Policy Centre. Mm-hmm.